Do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, which is just after the book of Judges, where we have been living for 16 weeks. I'm going to read all of Ruth 1, but I'll be preaching only on chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Let's go to our God in prayer, asking for His help. Our gracious God, we depend upon You, Your revelation, and the illumination of the Spirit that we might know you, we pray that you would guide us by your Spirit this evening to understand this text, and so we would praise you more truly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, Ruth chapter 1, hear now the word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites and from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband." Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, and returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. With the start of this series, I break away from the SOPs, Standard Operating Procedures, of course of most preachers who go through the book of Judges and the book of Ruth. If they preach through Judges and Ruth, 
They usually wait for the series in the book of Judges to be concluded before they start the book of Ruth. Ruth, whose name likely means refreshment, provides some relief after 21 chapters of heartache in the book of Judges. And so when it's all said and done, I will have preached about 30 sermons from the book of Judges, which would not be a lot, okay? If you're thinking that's a lot, it's not. Especially near the end, we will all be longing for some refreshment. But Ruth's water is for us now. Her refreshment is now. The reason for exploring the redemption through the book of Ruth now is, as far as I'm concerned, twofold. Most likely, the events recorded in the book of Ruth took place during either Ehud's or Gideon's time. And, as you know, we've already passed those two judges. We remember that there was oppression from Eglon, the king of Moab. We also recall that in the days of Gideon, there was a famine and there was Midianite oppression. The second reason is that it is a gift from God that even while we explore a period of heartbreaking infidelity, there is at the same time a picture of heart-satisfying fidelity, that is to say, of God bringing redemption. The book of Ruth is taking place in the time of the Judges. That there is, even while there is fatherly discipline, there is redemption, there is refreshment, there is relief, there is rescue. Jonathan Edwards lists two essential reasons why the book of Ruth is part of Scripture. Of course, there are many other reasons, but he gives two reasons, and I say that neither one of these is unsurprising or would be surprising to us. It is from Ruth's lineage, we know, that the Christ, the Redeemer, emerges That's clear at the end of the book of Ruth and in the um, birth narrative of Christ in the Gospels. Also, this book, Jonathan Edwards says, is a picture of God's amazing grace to a Gentile woman. Who would be that Gentile woman? Ruth. So putting my interpretive cards here on the table, through this book we will see Ruth as a type of the Gentiles being grafted into the Old Testament church. God loves Israel. We know this. This is clear. But he also loves to include outsiders. We see that in the book of Judges with Rahab. And we see that with Naaman in, in, um, in, the king, in Kings as well. And we see that here with Ruth, that God loves to include outsiders. We also see that this redemption, this incredible salvation will come to God's people through this kinsman redeemer, Boaz. Boaz, who himself functions as a type of Christ. He pictures for us Jesus. And so we have the church, the bride of Christ, represented in Ruth, Gentile. And we have Boaz representing Christ, the groom. But before we arrive at that place of blessed redemption in this story, we need to notice the desperate need for that redemption. Indeed, we should see the damaging effects that life away from God has on us. And for our eyes to be open to that vista of rescue, they need first to behold what more than meets the eye in the opening five verses here, which actually read a lot like the book of Judges than the book of Ruth. The point in this sermon, then, is to cut yourself off from the land of blessing, is to cut yourself off from the Lord of blessing. 
Look again with me at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So the book of Ruth opens with a man from Bethlehem who sojourns in Moab. To sojourn is to reside temporarily in a place, to not make it your permanent home, but to find lodging for a period of time as you are passing through. And the reason for the sojourn at least least earthly speaking here, is a famine in the land. As far as Elimelech is concerned, that's a really big deal, as it would be for all of us if there's there's a famine in the land. So that's why he needs to get out. He needs to leave. He needs to take his family away to find greener pastures. And what we see in this text, in this opening passage, is not a family to be modeled, but a family whose actions are instead to be mourned and whose initial faithlessness serves as a warning to all of us. Elimelech is not a villain in this story, but neither is he a hero. We see Elimelech doing what was typical of Israel during the days of the judges. We know the refrain, there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, ironically here, the the meaning of Elimelech is, my God is king. What his name means? My God is king, and with that name, you would think he would be fully devoted to God as king. But we see that he bears this title in name only. And this reading of the man's actions might seem uncharitable, but as we'll soon or soon see, it is it is not. When Elimelech dies, he was the head, of course. He was the head of the home. When he dies, then his wife, Naomi, becomes the new head. And through her actions, we see that she did what was right in her own eyes at first as well. She delays her return. And she was happy to stay in Moab as long as bread remained there. And so they're both guilty. They're both faithless followers of the Lord at this point in the story. And we'll look even next week, about whether or not Naomi, at this point, is even converted, is even a genuine follower. Well, verse 2, the second part of it says, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. They are anticipating Jonah's behavior. They flee from God. Obviously, to flee from the Lord is a fool's errand. You cannot run away from the everywhere present one. Nevertheless, the Lord has made his saving presence known where? He has made it known in the tabernacle. He has made it known in Israel. That is where he has shown his special presence, his covenantal presence, where he promises to bless his people. The land of the promise was the place where Israel was to worship the Lord. It was there where they would go to hear his voice. It was there where they would go to offer sacrifices and thanksgiving and adoration. It was there where they would be well cared for. And in a time of testing, in God's all-wise providence, there is a famine. And sadly, Elimelech takes his family away from that place. Granted, there was a famine in the land. And we say, well, what could a man do? There's a famine, for crying out loud. He's got a, a family to feed. He has to go where there's food, right? And so granted, Elimelech likely had no intention on staying in Moab forever. Certainly, he desired to return to Bethlehem when there was bread again in the land. 
And so his motive was to provide for his family. His plan was to leave Bethlehem just briefly. But that is where the problem in their thinking lies. To think that even a temporary departure from God's ways, even a temporary departure from God's means of grace will bring relief is to treat only the symptom of the problem and not the sin that is the problem. Look at verse 4 with me. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And so to make matters worse, they join with the enemy. After Elimelech dies, Naomi doesn't choose to return to Israel, at least not yet anyways. She doesn't return until she hears that there is bread again in Bethlehem. And so she has made Moab her home. And she has even sought Moabite wives for her Israelite sons. This is shocking. If you know the recent history, this should shock the reader. Take note of the trajectory of this family's faithlessness. Do well to remember the Israel-Moab tensions in recent history. Consider Moab's origin in Genesis 19. I'll spare you the, some of the details there, but... If you know the story, you know that Lot and his daughters escaped Sodom and Gomorrah. And that Lot's wife looked back, gazed upon Sodom and Gomorrah, wanting to go back, and perished, became a pillar of salt. And so it was Lot and his daughters that remained, and they they escaped to a little city called Zoar. And it was there where he and his daughters lived, in, in the hills. And when all seemed lost, Lot's daughters got dad drunk, and each slept with him in turn. They wanted to preserve a name for their dad. They wanted to preserve a name for themselves. And so they did. But not a really good name. And each woman had a child. The first was Moab. And the second was Ben-Ami, who is the father of the Ammonites. So we have, from, this origin, from this, these sinful unions, we have, the, we have two really fierce enemies of Israel. The Moabites and the Ammonites. If this did not happen, we would not have the Moabites oppressing the Israelites. And that's a whole sermon in itself. And Moab opposed Israel time and again. Moab would be a regular thorn in Israel's side. In Numbers 22 through 24, the Moabites refused Israel's passage when Israel came out of Egypt. They wanted to just spend some time there as they're passing through the land of promise But the Moabites said no. And they even hired Balaam to prophesy and to pronounce curses upon Israel. You might recall that. And in Numbers 25, Moabite women seduced Israelite men that they might marry them. There was false worship of Baal. And there were unapproved marriages between these two nations. Scandalously, you might recall, there was a woman, Cosby, a Midianite princess, someone from Moab, who joined with Zimri, an Israelite from the tribe of Simeon. And it took a zealous Phineas to impale the two while they were in the act in order to deal with the defilement, the arrogance. And the Lord in Deuteronomy 23 says that he excludes the Moabites from the assembly of the Lord. Given this this oppressive 
um, opposition. The fact that Moab was against Israel time and again. No longer would Moab, or that Moab would be refused the assembly of the Lord. They could not congregate with the Lord. And in Judges 3, who could forget the Moabite oppression from Eglon, the king of Moab? Who can forget that? Well, Elimelech and his family. That's who. Of the Bethlehemites, only Elimelech's family looked for provision in the wrong place. If the enemy has bread, then what is leaving the bread of life? You go where the bread is. And so go back to the famine. Why is there no bread in Bethlehem? And if there is perhaps one Hebrew word that we know, the meaning of, it's Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Do you notice the irony here? There is no bread in the house of bread. There is no life, there is no daily provision in the place where it is to be sought. Why is that? In a word, disobedience. Leviticus 26, 18 through 20, says essentially that if Israel as a nation disobeys the Lord of the covenant then covenantal curses will come upon Israel, some of which include an infertile land, that is to say, famine. If you reject the Lord of the land, the Lord will deny you his land. And ignorance will not excuse this family. They can't say we didn't know. Impenitence, not repenting, will keep them where they're at. So how will God's people be restored? How will they come to have bread again? In a word, repentance. After God, through Moses, issued blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience, he puts before them the hope of life through true repentance. This is found in Deuteronomy 30. He says, essentially, when by grace you come to your senses and you return, by grace when you repent, then you will find full forgiveness Then you will find a restoration of all those gracious fortunes, all those gifts. The Lord will make you abundantly prosperous. Your wombs will bear children, your ground will bear fruit, and the Lord will again take delight in prospering you when they repent. So what do you do without bread and the house of bread? You repent, and you plead with him who is the bread of life. We must know and trust the Redeemer through the Redeemer's means of grace. He has given us his word. We must never think ourselves wise in our own eyes. Our eyes must forever behold the word of God. Our vision does not have wisdom on its side. It does not hold eternity in view. Our sight is too often on ourselves. It's too often on our own circumstances. And the phrase, as I see it, does not always mean as God sees it, but too often at odds with one another. And as children have a hard time seeing things that their parents' way, so do we, children of God, too often put forth our interpretation while putting down God's revelation. We prioritize our view of things over against God's declaration of things. The Father has given us his Son as his word for us. To him we would do eternally well to listen. The Father hasn't given us only the word. The Father has also given us his Son, Emmanuel, God with us, who has experienced in many ways, but 
or but in one way, he has experienced sacramentally. That is to say, through the sacraments, through the two sacraments that we have, baptism and the Lord's Supper. We are the grace recipients of his baptism, something that we have a lifetime to hearken to, something we have a lifetime to meditate on, something we have a lifetime to use to fix our eyes on the one who has given us his name. When we come to Christ with faith, we are the graced guests at his table. It is one thing to come to the Lord's table prematurely. That is to say, it is one thing to come to the Lord's table without having, been, uh, without having made a profession of faith, without having that profession of faith examined. That's one thing. But it is quite another to have been admitted to the Lord's table and then to avoid coming. To say, no, I'm not going to eat this. No, I don't need this this week. Dear ones, you did not admit yourself to the table. And so do not remove yourself from it either. Let the elders do that. Of course, we pray that you would not be removed from the table. The Lord has given us his word. He has given us his sacraments. The Father has given us also his Son as our mediator in whose name we pray. He has given us prayer. Prayer is that means by which we verbally commune with our Father, with our Savior, with our Spirit. If you are dissatisfied with your prayer life, then welcome to the club. Who of us can say, yes, I'm perfectly satisfied with how I pray, with how often I pray, with the content of my prayers, with the regularity of my prayers? None of us can say that. But rather than letting that dissatisfaction drive you away from his holy throne of grace, use it to come to him. What shall we say to the husband who is dissatisfied with the level of intimacy that he has with his wife? Shall we say, don't bother, man. So many opportunities lost. You don't need to grow in this area. You don't need to be a better listener, a better communicator. You don't need to learn how to spend more time with her. Just forget about it. Just call it a loss and go home. Of course we wouldn't say that to him, would we? A few weeks back, I was visiting one of our shut-ins I spent most of the time listening to his reflections of a retired pastor, retired PCA pastor. I was listening to his reflections on his decades of pastoral ministry, and a pastor who ministered for all that time surely has some regrets. And he mentioned one of them to me. He said, I would have spent more time in prayer. I'm not going to add any commentary to that. That's enough said. If we diligently pursue fellowship with Christ our Redeemer, then we will be full of hope. But if we avoid communion with our God, we should expect depression. We should expect hopelessness. We should expect darkness. Now, this is, to be sure, a very dark opening to a much-beloved book, these, these first five verses. We have beheld some of that darkness, but there is still more darkness to, to see before we see the light. This place of refuge and provision turned out to be fruitless. Like an oasis, the land of Moab seemed to be a land flowing with milk and honey. Instead, what the family of Elimelech experienced was a fruitless life in a barren land. Their lot was truly a miserable one. How do we know this? We know this from a few realities in this text. The first is the names that some of these people are given. 
The names of the sons are a partial giveaway. Mahlon means the sick one. And Kilion means the one who's coming to an end. And so you see from the very beginning that these guys are not going to last very long in the story. We also see the depression in these, what I call, no-no marriages. I was sticking with the N in this section of the notes there, you see. These marriages that are not approved. Contrary to God's law, Mahlon and Kilion took Moabite women as wives. You notice, verse 4, it says they took wives, not they married wives. They took wives. And this language, to take wives recalls that shameful episode which we'll get to at the end of Judges in chapter 21 in which the Benjamites took wives by abduction in order to keep their tribe alive. You might recall that episode. It's a heartbreaking way to end the book of Judges. But the hard truth, maybe you've not noticed this before, but the hard truth in this text is that Mahlon never should have married Ruth in the first place. And Naomi, the new head of the home, never should have approved of this marriage. You hold on to that for this whole series. Because if you keep that in your mind, then you will enjoy the, the sweetness of the redemption of how God uses our own evil deeds for good, for his glory. There was also no burial given In Bethlehem, Elimelech and his sons die, and they are buried in an unclean land. There are many passages of Scripture that talk about being buried in an unclean land as a form of judgment. Amos 7, 17 is one that you can go to in your own time. But if the land of promise is where people desire to be buried, to not be buried there is a curse. It is a judgment, not a blessing. You remember Joseph He said, take my bones. I'm going to die and take my bones to the promised land when you go there. Another display of the judgment of the discipline of God is the woman's barrenness. There was no offspring. After 10 years of living in a supposedly fruitful land, they have nothing to show for it. Their disobedience did not pay off in the end. And Naomi's miserable state is summarized well in verse 5. The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. That phrase, to be left, often speaks of surviving the wrath and judgment of God. Of experiencing the aftermath of either wrath or fatherly discipline. Deuteronomy 4.27 says that if Israel is idolatrous, then the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. In Zechariah 11, verse 9, the Lord says, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those who are left devour the flesh of one another. Those who are left to deal with the aftermath of divine discipline or left to devour the flesh of one another. 
And it's not a happy state to be in. And so here is this woman who is left without her two sons and her husband. Certainly, we pity her. Certainly, we wouldn't wish this upon her, nor upon ourselves, nor upon anyone else. At the end of verse 5, Naomi and her two daughters-in-law were utterly hopeless. We have to affirm this reality from the very beginning if we are going to see the sweet redemption in the end. The good news of redemption assumes the bad news of depression. Dear ones, know your miserable condition outside of the Redeemer's redemption. We cannot rejoice that we are brought into an estate of, of salvation by the one Redeemer if we do not first come to terms with the reality that we were first born into an estate of sin and misery. I recently came across one of those rare heartwarming stories that the news seems reluctant to share. Back in August of 2020, a 14-year-old by the name of Shariah entered a hospital in Indiana, and she entered this hospital pregnant. 14-year-old pregnant. In 15 years teaching, I've had students who ended up being pregnant, but never, well, not never, only one time, a 14-year-old was pregnant. And that was hard for her. She had her grandma to, to be with. But if being pregnant at 14 was not hard enough, she came to the hospital sooner than expected. She had to deliver not one, not two, but three babies who were only 26 weeks old. And if that wasn't hard enough, this teenage mother had really no one to come to, no one to turn to. There was no mother in the picture. The father of the children had abandoned her. There was a distant aunt that she was able to connect with only briefly. The NICU nurse, Katrina Mullen, took notice of Shariah, herself having been a teen mom. Over the five-month stay in the hospital, Katrina and Shariah got to know each other, got to love each other. Katrina functioned as that mom to this young mother that was in desperate need of guidance. Nobody had come to see Shariah. Nobody had come to see her three kids in that five-month stay. The mother was on her own with three little ones. She was eventually discharged from the hospital, but soon had to return because one of her children was sick from malnutrition. And Shariah was told that she and her children would have to be, um, would have to be brought into foster care. Because again, she's, she's a child herself. She's 14. So she had only one person she knew that she could call, and that was Katrina, the nurse. Katrina herself, a single mom of five children, took into her home Shariah and her three children, becoming now a household of ten. It wasn't long before she legally adopted Shariah as her daughter. And Shariah is about to get a college degree. It's a recent story, so that's where we're at right now. And a degree based on an academic scholarship. And so the story for her seems to end fairly well. seems to be going well anyways. And we are struck with this redemption, aren't we? This salvation of sorts. We are struck at how this Mother, Katrina, would, who already has five children, who doesn't have a husband herself, who would take another child, 14-year-old, and her three children into her home. 
That is a rescue. It is a, a salvation from an earthly perspective. She didn't owe Shariah refuge. She went above and beyond her nurse's duty. And so we are struck. We marvel at this kind of hospitality, this kind of redemption. But at the same time, we are struck with the sin and the suffering that made that redemption necessary. Fornication. The absence of the young mother's mother. The abandonment of the kid's father. And on and on. We are relieved that this desperate teenager found adoption. But we are right to ask, why was she in so hopeless a state to begin with? Why was that necessary? She and her children were full of misery and empty of hope. Dear ones, we would do well to consider our estate of sin and misery. We do well to consider who we are in our sinfulness. To see how awful, apart from Christ, we really are. And how even with Christ, we are works in progress, in desperate need of his daily mercy, of his daily grace, of his daily means of grace. We do well to see our own sinfulness, to see how our words offend our holy God, to see how our emotions do not line up with the will of God, to see how our actions go contrary to the law of God, to see how our lives hurt one another. We do well to see that. Let us always look at our own sin and the effects of our sin. But oh, let us never stay there. Let us always look to Christ as well. Not just as well, but more than we look at our sin. Robert Murray McShane says, For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Yes, consider your sin. But consider your Savior ten times more than you consider your sin. Consider his heart, his compassion, his meekness, his wisdom, his love, his kindness, his knowledge, his relentless pursuit of you. Consider his eternal love with the Father and his eternal love with the Spirit. Consider him. There's so much to consider when you consider the God-man, Jesus Christ, the one who is eternal, the eternal one who became incarnate, who lived this life in a world full of thorns and thistles, who was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, and who went to the cross knowing that that was our only only remedy for our blasphemous sins, for our offensive sinfulness. And it was raised from the dead for our justification that we might be declared righteous before his Father, our judge. Consider him. We were born in the fell-smelling sewer of our sin. And it's not wrong then to sniff around and to be repulsed by that sin. But our Redeemer lifts us out of that sewer And we breathe in the fresh, living air of the Spirit. We've taken many looks at sin in these first few verses. That was to help us savor the life of the singular redemption that we have in Christ Jesus himself. 
This redemption will come through a surprising figure. But that is for another sermon. Let's pray. Lord, our gracious God, help us in our interest to be more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Help us to see our sins, that we might turn away from them, and help us to see Christ more and more truly, that we might turn to Him, always to Him, to see His beauty, His grace, His love for you and for us, that we might be more like Him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.